Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Joining me today is Brian Kenworthy, Design Principal at ZGF Architects based in ZGF's Los Angeles office. When Brian Kenworthy describes his passion for the local art and design scene in Los Angeles, it's hard to imagine he began his undergraduate career as a pre-med student. Influenced by early time spent working on projects with several Pritzker Prize-winning architects and collaborations with contemporary artists, Brian creates architecture imbued with a strong sense of materiality, craft, presence, and place. With years of professional experience across project types ranging from cultural and institutional to higher ed and residential, Brian has an affinity for developing creative design solutions to meet challenging project goals and an ability to build consensus among stakeholders. I'm really excited about this. The project we are talking about today is the California Science Center, Samuel Oshin Air and Space Center in Los Angeles, California. As the permanent home of Space Shuttle Endeavor, one of America's most priceless artifacts, California Science Center's 200,000 square foot Samuel Oshin Air and Space Center will be a symbol of American ingenuity and its renowned legacy of space exploration. As architects for the master plan and prior phases of the California Science Center, ZGF designed the Phase 3 expansion, dubbed the Samuel Oshin Air and Space Center. The Air and Space Center's leading attraction will be the Space Shuttle Endeavor, an orbiter that was part of the space exploration program from 1992 until 2011. 
which was awarded to the California Science Center Foundation by NASA. Endeavor will be displayed vertically in launch position in conjunction with other exhibits that explore the science, technology, engineering, and math principles related to the shuttle program, as well as hands-on exhibits, immersive experiences, and historic air and space artifacts. Distinguishing itself from California Science Center's existing buildings, the Samuel Ashen Air and Space Center will have its own unique architectural identity. Characterized by a curvilinear design of exterior forms clad in stainless steel, the new addition's architectural expression is inspired by the aerodynamic, fluid geometry of the Endeavour's fuselage, cockpit, wings, and vertical stabilizer. The primary structure will be three stories, while the shuttle gallery will rise six stories, peaking at 200 feet, to accommodate the height of the Endeavour in launch position. As the tallest structure in Exposition Park, Endeavor's forever home will be visible from vantage points across Los Angeles to share with the city and the world the legendary legacy Endeavor leaves in space. I have to tell you, when you agreed to do this and you told me what we were going to be talking about, I've always had this secret fantasy of floating around in space in a space shuttle. So getting to talk about this building is, um, extra cool to me. And funny story, one of my spec writing mentors, who I have known of him even before I knew him my entire career is Lee Kilborn, who was your spec writer in your Portland office for I believe it was over 50 years. That's right. He's he's yeah. going to be so excited when he f- he finds out he got a call out. He's retired <laughs> obviously now, but yes. he got a call out on the podcast today. So how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here today. Well, we're excited to have you and and to talk about this building. I would personally like an invitation after it opens to come check it out. Amen. Amen. So let's just um, warm it up. I always start with an icebreaker question. Tell me one interesting thing about you that is not directly related to architecture. Hmm. I manage over a billion and a half dollars worth of work for ZGF. But what's really stressing me out these days is coaching my uh, younger son's AYSO U12 soccer team. I am a bit too obsessed with it. This is my first year coaching soccer. Honestly, my best qualification for coaching soccer is that I'm a big English Premier League football fan. And now I spend ridiculous amounts of time planning practices, uh, discussing formations and uh, retooling lineups. I have a specific development plan for each kid. I even use my graphic design skills to uh, make them a custom logo on practice jerseys. But the boys are having a blast. That's what's important, um, and I try not let to let them see me sweat. Oh, that what an architect being obsessive! I just I can't. E- I can't even imagine. So let's talk about this building. So we're talking about the California Science Center Phase Three Samuel Ashen. I hope I said that right. Air and Space Center in Los Angeles. What's the story? <laughs> what What's the story about the the history, the goals, the aspirations? I mean, this is the coolest looking building. The Samuel Ashen Air and Space Center is phase three of the California Science Center. And it's actually the culmination of a 25-year relationship with ZGF. After designing the master plan for Exposition Park, ZGF designed phase one of the Science Center, which opened in 1998, uh, as well as phase two, which opened in 2010. 
Phase 3 is now under construction, and we couldn't be more excited to see it get built. It's been quite a journey. We actually started working on it back in 2012, so it's been 10 years to kind of see wow. it break ground. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Doss Mabe, the founding partner of the Los Angeles office for ZGF. He couldn't be here today, but he was instrumental in developing and maintaining the relationship over these years um, with the California Science Center. And really, all three phases are really a testament to his achievement as an architect. I thank the world to him. That said, we also couldn't be prouder to be associated with the California Science Center as a community resource for all of Los Angeles. The center was originally strategically located in the middle of Los Angeles to make sure that it was uh, a resource for the entire city. And it sits squarely in a community that is diverse as the region um, and as diverse as the entire state of California. It's also very accessible being close to public transit. It remains to this day free of charge. And almost every student in Los Angeles visits the center at least once during their education. Um, my son's actually scheduled to go there um, next month. But, and you know, this is in large part because of the Science Center's mission to be a resource for inspiring the next generation of scientists, engineers, explorers, especially increasing the diversity of students inspired to become a scientist or an engineer, even though they may not necessarily see people look like them in textbooks. I, I love that. I have a picture of my granddaughter in a spacesuit. I had taken her to the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. They were selling a spacesuit and some other more like girly thing costume in the gift shop. And I told her, choose whatever you want. And she wanted to be an astronaut. I could not buy that thing for her fast enough. We <laughs> said, here you go. And I'm like, you shoot for the moon, baby, and you better take me. <laughs> so um, tell me about this building. Well, the star of the building is Endeavor. It's one of our country's most important and priceless artifacts. It represents everything that's great about our ingenuity, drive, and resolve to seek answers about our planet and our universe. And the mission of the building is to utilize Endeavor to create a sense of wonder and awe in young people. We need to inspire an early interest in our next generation of engineers and astronauts in STEM to continue to innovate and explore. So really the most important design challenge was how to display Endeavor in a fashion that creates this sense of amazement. The decision to display the shuttle vertically along with its fuel tank and two booster rockets in launch position was made very early on with California Science Center, but there's really so much more drama to it that we built into the building. Before reaching the shuttle hall, visitors to the center will travel through and explore over 150 other exhibits and galleries that tell over a 100-year story of aviation and spaceflight. It starts with the air gallery, which will include approximately 20 aircraft on display, some hung from the ceiling, from a replica of the Wright Brothers 1902 glider to modern supersonic jet fighters. The gallery will just put on complete display the evolution of flight design. And then there's the space gallery, which includes examples of spacecraft from every stage of the U.S. manned space program, including the Apollo-Soyuz command module, the Mercury MR2, the Gemini 11 space capsules. And then next, they're drawn into a screening room that shows a short film about the history of Endeavor, produced by Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams, who did some of the Star Wars movies. At its conclusion, showing Endeavor lifting off for the last time. And liftoff of Space Shuttle Endeavor on a 21st century mission, placing Earth back on the map. Smoke begins to come out from the base of the screen, and it splits in half and retracts, and that opens up your first view to Endeavor beyond. 
And then visitors are welcome to walk through that opening. And that's where they get their first glimpse of the Space Shuttle Endeavour. A lot of study actually went into crafting that first view. We actually made sure it was mid-level, so you get a complete view from tail to tip of the entire assembly. And the building and the way that it shrouds and the way that it drapes around it is really crafted for that specific view coming from that first vantage point. After that, you're actually welcomed down to the base of the shuttle. You can actually get underneath it and look all the way up. And we added vertical gantry adjacent to the shuttle. It mimics kind of the structure that was adjacent to the shuttle when it was placed in launch position on the launch pad. And that gantry allows, along with a series of catwalks that kind of wrap up and around the space shuttle, allow you to get up and close and personal with it and view it at a bunch of different levels, including kind of culminating with the top of the gantry a glass floor platform that extends over the tip of the nose of the space shuttle and allows visitors to kind of see down into the cockpit of the shuttle below, as well as a view from the very top of the shuttle assembly overall. So you're under construction right now. Mm -hmm. And I saw, you know, that the building is two stories, but around the shuttle, it's six. Is the shuttle there right now and you're building around it? The shuttle is actually on site, but it's displayed in kind of a what's been a temporary building for the last 10 years. Okay. And that was that was actually a big early challenge to kind of wrap our heads around this decision of, do we put the shuttle in place and then build the building around it? The advantage to that is that we don't have to deal with a lot of rigging and um, other things, but protecting the shuttle during that time it's a little bit surprising to people how fragile the shuttle is. I mean, everyone thinks that it kind of went into outer space and it's this really rugged piece, this artifact. It's actually super fragile. So the idea of someone being overhead and dropping a screwdriver down on it just terrifies all of us. The other option that was kind of considered was leaving a bit of the skin of the building out, building a majority of the building, and then you know rigging it into the building and kind of lifting it in that way. And we actually went through a lot of conversations with NASA with the rigging company, which the rigging company was actually the same company that helped move the shuttle from LAX to Expedition Park in the beginning. And, you know, we're working with a contractor and crane operators. And in the end, we decided to build the building around it. Um, there wasn't the confidence that we could actually kind of move it in place um, and really get it there without really damaging the shuttle. So it was a bit of pick your poison. Can't say that we're not still kind of nervous about it, but we've designed this uh, shroud for the shuttle, we're calling it shuttle bubble wrap. And it's hopefully going to keep the shuttle safe during the construction process. So you're in construction right now. Um, it opens next year, is that correct? The goal is to have it open in time for the 2028 Olympics. Okay. The opening of the building is a ways off. So how's construction going so far? Very well, very well. There's a, I mean, it, there's a big hole in the ground. Another another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets, and there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. To understand more about this and other elements of the structural design, we also spoke with the structural engineer on the project. My name is Amy Nolman, and I'm an associate principal in AREP's Los Angeles office. I was the lead structural engineer and the project manager for the AREP team, who were involved with the design of the Samuel Ocean Air and Space Center at the California Science Center. 
My grandfather was an aeronautical engineer designing mechanical systems for the shuttles for the space program. So it feels very full circle for me to now be designing the permanent home that the space shuttle endeavor is going to reside in. A base isolation system is a method of seismic protection where the building structure is separated from the base, either foundation or substructure. This reduces the amount of energy that is transferred to the structure during an earthquake. What it effectively does is elongates the period of whatever sitting on top of it. Typically, it's a structure. In this case, it's an artifact. So less force from the earthquake will go into the structure. So there's less force that you have to resist. We realized that the forces that the shuttle stack was going to experience at its site in Los Angeles, which is a highly seismic area, were going to be larger than what the forces it saw when it was launched from ground through Earth's atmosphere and out into space. So we knew that the Endeavour needed to have the loads lowered. So that's when we introduced the base isolation. The ones that we're using on this project are specifically called triple friction pendulum or TFP isolators. And, and what that is comprised of is a series of concave steel spherical plates that are highly polished. And there's a puck sort of in the middle of these plates that as the ground moves, the puck will float around inside the spherical plates, both the one on the bottom and the top. And there's two layers of that. As it moves around, it absorbs the energy and the force from the earthquake. Whatever sits on top of the isolator, in this case, it's the shuttle, gets to glide gently around rather than something that's locked to the ground and experiences all those whiplash effects as the ground goes back and forth during an earthquake. In making this building what it's going to be when it's built, tell me about some of the pieces and parts you found challenging to get to where you wanted to go or what did you do or what products did you did you use to get the look and feel? Because it is a sleek, sleek looking building. I love this building. I think the thing I'm most proud of about that is that we designed this building 10 years ago. When we decided to break ground on it, I think there was some question of whether or not we needed to update the design of it. And I think it's managed to already stand the test of 10 years of time, having aged a bit. So proud of that. As time went on, as we did the design of the building, the Science Center continued to acquire elements of what we call the shuttle stack exhibit. So that's the orbiter, the external tank, the orange thing it attaches to, the two white solid rocket boosters on the sides of the external tank, and then all the connection hardware between those four elements. They acquired all of that. So it's a completely real artifact, all existing pieces. But when we started, we thought we were going to have to build structural steel frames that sort of mimicked those other elements and clad them, right? Make them look like the shuttle stack, but they weren't going to be authentic. They would have to be just made from typical structural materials. But then it just really changed the challenge because then now we have a 180 foot tall, 500,000 pound multi-element artifact that we don't know how it's going to act in an earthquake, right? You can't just bolts it to the ground and hope for the best. Um, and we kind of went at that challenge once it was fully realized three ways. We reduced the demand from the earthquakes, which is the base isolation I was talking about. And then we got to collaborate with these ex-Boeing engineers that were involved in the original space program. They actually gave us a mathematical representation of the shuttle stack that Boeing used during the original space program to design the elements. 
and the software that we elected to use was able to combine that mathematical representation with the elements we were designing, which was this concrete base that it attaches to and the base isolators that go under it and the pile foundation. So we got to combine all that into one software. And we would run the earthquake ground motions through that compiled exhibit and support system. And then we gave the demands back to the Boeing engineers and they checked and confirmed that the stack elements would be safe during an earthquake. And then we used an atypical software that we don't typically use in, in structural analysis and design, but it really behooved us and helped us. It's called LS Dyna. And it's actually more commonly used to evaluate damage from car crashes. But we used it kind of for two main reasons. And one is it had that function where we could combine the mathematical model from the Boeing engineers and our support structure. And then it's really superior to typical structural softwares in performing the type of analysis we had to do that would capture the stack's behavior including the base isolation and the stack itself during the multiple earthquake scenarios. So the analysis is called nonlinear time history analysis. And LS Dyna, it has various simultaneous nonlinearities in the analysis. That's as technical as I'll get. I'll stop there. So the, those kind of three things, isolating it and working with the Boeing engineers and using LS Dyna got us there. But in terms of challenges, the structure of the shroud for the building specifically the shuttle hall, was really kind of complicated to design. We had a lot of help uh, from our structural engineer, Arup. Looking at just kind of a traditional steel frame structure for it was too heavy, too bulky, and we had all sorts of problems with seismic in terms of the shape and bracing. And what we eventually came to was a diagrid, which is um, kind of a series of triangular pieces. Um, it actually is more diffuse. It spreads the loads. Um, and it's composed of smaller members. It's actually uh, lighter than a traditional steel frame building would have been. Moreover, I think it just, uh, just aesthetically, it's all exposed, actually. You'll be able to see it on clear display, kind of the backdrop for the shuttle in the shuttle hall. And it creates this kind of very clearly engineered artifice to the interior as a backdrop. It's a 200-foot-tall enclosure. And the team wanted the space around the stack to be wide open so that we could properly enclose the stack itself. They also wanted to have space around it so you can view it from different um, vantage points or angles or locations, right? So in order to do that, we effectively designed a 200-foot-tall roof. So instead of buildings with floor levels, it was just a very, very tall enclosure, 200-foot-tall roof. So we used a cantilevered concrete shear wall system for the bottom. And then we used a steel braced frame diagrid type roof structure for the remaining height. And in order to ensure that the building enclosing the shuttle stack artifact wouldn't collapse during an earthquake, we used a performance-based design to design the roof to a higher level of seismic performance than a typical building code-based design. The remainder of the building is really, there's as much emphasis on it being a warehouse and a very flexible warehouse, almost akin to kind of old airplane hangars. So the aesthetic inside is very industrial. But, you know, we've got airplanes hanging from the ceiling. Um, we've got part of a Korean airline jet cross-section that's uh, on the second floor. So there are just all these kind of crazy loads dispersed throughout the building. And it really, I think we want it to be changeable over time. 
these exhibits are meant to change and keep people coming back to see new things and keep them energized about coming. And obviously the shuttle is not going to change right. for uh, the foreseeable future. But I think the remainder of the building is really seen as very flexible. And you're not dealing with typical point loads, hanging planes from the ceiling and putting them on second floors and the ability to kind of build a warehouse that was just super simple and super flexible, but still had the ability to accommodate anything we put our minds to sort of displaying in the future was a real achievement. And again, there was a lot of help from Arab, our structural engineer, about that. Buildings affect me, my mood, emotionally. Talk to me a little bit about unique products or materials you used to get those warm fuzzies. For me, those are the warm fuzzies. Sure. Probably the most emphasis we placed on any single material was the exterior skin of the building. We eventually settled on an angel hair stainless steel. And that really came from a desire to recall a bit of that aviation aeronautical history. Stainless steel is a very traditional material in airplanes because of its corrosion resistance and as well as its ability to kind of withstand high temperatures and high, high wind speeds. The stainless steel actually lent itself to being panelized in a way that we recalled the shuttle itself. It's one of the most common observations we get from people when they first see the shuttle, because you know, you've, you've usually seen it on TV or maybe you've seen it from a couple of miles away. You think it's this very monolithic sort of shell to the shuttle. It's actually comprised of just very little tiny tiles. And so the ability for stainless steel to kind of be penalized and recall that was interesting to us. But it also had to be a material that could accommodate the curvilinear design of the skin. The form of the exterior of the building recalls that aerodynamic, the kind of fluid geometry of traditional aircraft and spacecraft, specifically the aerodynamic form of Endeavour's fuselage or cockpit, the vertical stabilizer, you've seen those sort of curves. And we needed a material that was malleable enough to kind of accommodate the curving of that form. I will say one thing we were particularly concerned about and went to a lot of trouble with, we actually went to Zaner is helping us with the fabrication of the stainless steel. And we've gone out there several times to kind of see it in place um, at different times throughout the year. You know, there are all sorts of stories. Disney Concert Hall is a good example of just blinding drivers when it catches the sun just right. And uh, we chose the angel brush finish to it um, as a way of kind of avoiding that specular uh, hot spots but still allowing it to kind of sparkle in the sun, kind of be that icon that we know it will be. I had never heard the term curvilinear design. Tell me what curvilinear design, does that just mean a curved design? Curvilinear design really just describes, it, rather than being a flat rectilinear plane or boxes like a majority of the buildings you see, its facades are defined more by curves and straight lines. Okay. So, for instance, I can kind of describe the geometry of the shuttle hall. It's actually, it's a draped conical frustrum, and it's created by a small oval at the top and an offset oval at the bottom. Connecting those two ovals is what creates the frustrum. And then the draped aspect to it is that rather than it being straight lines that connect those two ovals, they're concave curves a series of concrete curves around it that actually create the drape when we connect those two ovals. So that's a pretty good example of what 
curvilinear design is. I, you know, it's a pretty complex example of that. I think the the podium building is actually a little simpler. The geometry there is similar, but um, the surfaces are, are still flat in pieces. They're just bent along curves at corners and sometimes angled in section um, and rounded in places. But all of it is really just an effort to make a building that echoed the more aerodynamic and fluid geometry of aircraft, spacecraft, and specifically the space shuttle. I'm not even going to try to say the Fustra thing. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. I, I'll come out saying something that probably is totally inappropriate. <laughs> um, you know, I'm listening to you talk about this building and the complexity of the building and, and what you're trying to accomplish. I can only imagine what the team looks like. Talk to me a little bit about some of the players on the team and and what they brought to this building and or technically did to make it what it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I mentioned Arup before. I, I, we can't thank them enough for the help that they've given us on this project. I mean, all these sort of technical challenges, um, a lot of them came back to structure. Um, they were actually not just our structural engineer. They were our mechanical, electrical, and plumbing um, engineer as well. Um, so they were a very large part of the project. I mentioned Zayner as well. They are a fabrication company um, out of the Midwest. And they've been very instrumental in helping us uh, rationalize this curvilinear design, um, this three-dimensionality to the building that isn't necessarily just flat panels that are easily constructed. And then Mac Construction has been a part of the project for the last 10 years. Um, they've been with us for the long haul. Again, it's it's been a bit of a, a voyage to get here. And, you know, them helping us keep up with cost estimates along the way and really understand sort of the changing landscape of what the building was going to cost and what we were going to need to do to be able to construct it along the way. Because, you know, we've been fundraising for that time to try and get right. it and costs go up. And so we're in a way kind of chasing our tail a little bit sometimes. So they've been very helpful with us understanding that um, and understanding our goals and how we're going to get there. And then, you know, we haven't talked much about it, but the exhibit designers, evidence design, collaborating with them about the interior environment will lend itself to a large part of the success of the interiors. Just so much of the success of this building will be in engaging young people in this active learning through discovery. Um, and that's a big part of what they're bringing to the project. I'm trying to picture in my head with all these curves, what your wall assemblies must look like. <laughs> How did you make this building tight and is it going to be an energy effective building with that kind of design? I got to know what's underneath <laughs> the stainless steel. It's surprisingly simple. I mean, I think the geometry of it is very complicated, but I don't think the assemblies for the exterior facade are very complicated. The metal is actually very thin, but it's laminated to a foam that provides some insulation factor. I mean, there's a waterproofing layer and there's structure behind that, but so much of that is exposed to the interior um, and the finishes are so raw um, on the interior. It really was meant to be that kind of airplane hanger, just let's expose structure and everything we can. Um, even in the shuttle hall, all that foam that insulates the building will be on display. Um, we're not even covering that up. So it, it is a very raw building. There are very few windows in the building. Insulating the building that way did lend itself towards creating a pretty ener energy efficient building. That makes it actually rather genius. <laughs> so can you tell me, um, in the process of this project that has been going on for a very long time, was there anything from this project that changed your perspective about design going forward? 
This project is the ultimate reminder of how much patience and determination it requires to be an architect. I joined ZGF to work on this project back in 2014, thinking that I would be touring people around the building by now. But it took so many years to raise the funds for the building. Along the way, we had to keep the permit active and update the drawings and codes only got stricter. And we had to work very hard not to incur additional costs so we wouldn't be chasing our tail with fundraising. It's one of the things that I tell young architects who are kind of used to other, you know, their friends working on projects in other fields where there's sometimes a turnaround time of six months or a year or two. Architects really need a lot of patience and a lot of determination to see our projects through. They just take quite a long time. I believe in the payoff for that, or I wouldn't be here, but this project really is a reminder of uh, how much patience and determination it needs. I will say as a side note, the smartest thing the Science Center ever did was buy the coils for the stainless steel. They bought them back in, I think, 2015. And as soon as they kind of understood that they were the project was going to go on hold for a bit and they needed to fundraise, they did have the money. Those coils have been sitting in a warehouse in Los Angeles since 2015. It saved a ton of money. Uh, and it is primarily one of the biggest reasons that the, the project is um, uh, affordable for us now. What would you say this, your biggest lesson learned on this project was that were you to go do another similar type of building, you would do differently, or maybe you would just do it efficiently, or you'd make this phone call first before you took this step. Besides learning to be really patient, which I, I think has to be inherent in this industry, what did this building teach you? I'm really happy that we have the tools now that we have that have developed over the last 10 years to be able to better understand and, and more efficiently design buildings that are not necessarily boxes. So um, the software that's come along since then is uh, much more sophisticated and much more user-friendly. We're able to understand this much better. I look back at the struggles we had to kind of design this and understand the form of the building. I mean, I can remember a grasshopper script that looked like an essay of madness on the wall, right? Like it extended literally on the screen, it extended for six feet if you scrolled over, just trying to understand uh, all the panelization of everything. I think now um, we could do that much more simply um, and much more clearly. So, and I think part of the evolution of that software has come out of more buildings actually getting away from just being these sort of static boxes to being a little bit more reflective of, of other aesthetics. What innovative changes in technology and construction that you see kind of coming to the forefront now do you just personally think, whether you're right, wrong, or otherwise doesn't even matter, personally think are going to be game changers and what our buildings look like going forward? Yeah, I, I think a lot about this, and it's been on my mind a bunch lately. I'm actually very curious about, but also a little terrified of, the quick advancement of architectural image generation by artificial intelligent algorithms like MidJourney. You can type in a few words to an algorithm about architecture and it actually pumps out three or four versions of a rendering, basically incorporating those words. And the leaps and bounds that it is progressing by and the sophistication that, it, that we're seeing in it is really amazing. It, it offers such fast and seductive visualization and in a way, it opens the door to elements of design to a much wider range of people. I mean, I think previously, up until now, you would have had to know 3D modeling software and 3D rendering programs to be able to generate these sort of images 
um, or at least Photoshop. Now it's just taken over my Instagram feed of people sort of just generating the, these images. And, and sometimes they're so convincing that you almost think that they're built. I mean, it is really amazing. The danger, I think, comes like there, there's a lack of control um, that we're ceding to the algorithm that's somewhat concerning. And just how it's generating these images, it's basically learning from what's already on the internet and pulling ideas from that. So it's inherently somewhat reductive, um, which is concerning. But I'm just trying to wrap my brain around how I will react to seeing mid-journey images on pinup boards soon um, instead of real precedent projects, you know, and studio crits as, as a sketch. I'm just trying to kind of, maybe I'm old. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around that. I, I think it's amazing, but I, I have the same, again, not throwing out any numbers, but when I started in my career, I remember all of the eraser shavings on the floor as they are very carefully drawing their building on mylar because, you know, you need to measure twice and cut once because you do not want to have to redraw an entire sheet. And while I'm a technology freak, I love how efficient we have become in so many areas yet you don't want to lose the creativity, the artistic nature of kind of getting your hands dirty and fleshing that out yourself instead of just speaking to a machine and saying whatever you say to get this pretty picture. So hopefully there's a, like in anything in life, there's a balance. Um, We all had, I call them two by four upside the head moments in our career (laughs) or those epiphany moments like, oh, wow. Tell me about one of yours. I say this to people all the time. It's be careful what you're good at. Um, I know I know this sounds a little arrogant, but at this point in my career, I can kind of do just about anything in architecture. And I've made a point very early on of getting experience in every facet of architecture. I worked at small firms for the first half of my career where I not only got experience in every phase of projects, but I, I was also often the HR department. I was the accounting department, PR marketing department, um, just every aspect of practice. And because of that, I often and still this this day get pulled in a lot of different directions, hence me doing a podcast today, which I'm very excited about. But it's my personality to always kind of want to help everyone. But I've had to learn to focus on where I can make the most impact with my time um, and to be a little selfish about what I'm most interested because it'll get my best effort. I don't think there's anything at all arrogant about that. Um, I have had a very similar path to you. My first firm was a fairly small firm. And I would answer the phone and they'd say, can I talk to accounting? And I'd say, please hold. And then I'd pick it back up (laughs) and talk to your spec writer or your contract manager or whatever, pick marketing. I did it all there. It was very valuable. But you do, you do have to learn to corral that as you move through your career and and kind of move up the ladder a little bit and really work where you're most effective. So no, I love that answer. Final question that I got to put back in. I'm so happy. So I'm curious about what I call your, your world domination statement, personal or professional, what mark or marks do you hope as an individual to leave on this world? Yeah, I was, I was actually excited. I've listened to several of your podcasts. I was excited to answer this question and it's actually evolved for me over my years as an architect. For a large part of my early career, I was almost single-mindedly focused on adding beauty and intelligence to our world through the built environment. The buildings were kind of all that mattered. I was admittedly a, a mercenary in what I worked on and seeing it through. Eventually, that grew a little to include adding a bit of a sense of humor 
too, but um, as I understood life more. But more recently, that focus has really shifted significantly for me. I wouldn't say I've lost focus on our buildings, but it's expanded to building architects as much as architecture. I had wonderful mentors throughout my career that helped shape me. And a large part of my mission now is helping to shape new architects towards the future. Truth is, I learned as much from them as they learned from me. And ZGF has really created a wonderful playground for the development of architects with a strong commitment to creating an equitable and balanced work environment. I'm very proud of the Air and Space Center, but I am as proud of the team of architects that worked on it with me and their growth during its design. I think we might be twins. (laughs) I feel the same way you do. I truly do that at this point in my career, I love the work that I do, but what truly gives me joy is being able to help the people coming up behind me because we didn't get as much of that. I had some great mentors as well, but the boomer generation was so in competition with each other that they held things a little closer to the vest. And I think we could all do better in that arena. So I absolutely love that answer. I think we're related. Um, and we are definitely actually really going to have a cocktail next time I'm in LA. <laughs> and hopefully Please. I get to see this building. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about this building. We will be, um, for our listeners, putting some pictures up, um, some renderings that we got from you on the website and uh, a link to some more information on the project and a link to ZGF. So check it all out. And I hope you all enjoyed this. And thank you again for being here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around RCAT.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.